It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here and uh, to start <clears throat> what is our Advent series. So we are, we are kind of transitioning into a sub-series within the Big Picture series. This is uh, uncharted waters for us. We don't normally do something this bold. Uh, so uh, right in the middle of a series, we're going to pick up another sub-series. This one's called, uh, this candle might be on fire, I don't know. We'll see. All right, cool. It's, uh, yeah, awesome. So uh, anyway, so we're going to pick up the, this Advent series here. So if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is where we'll be. Um, so from now until the end of December, we're going to be looking at the incarnation of God's redemption. What we've been doing throughout the big picture has been all about seeing God's redemptive story in all of Scripture, but also being able to observe it in our day and time to see what it is that God's doing right now and what it is we can expect Him to do in the future. Advent is really no different. It's about what God promised to do and what God did through Jesus Christ in the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, so that we can look with hope, with not some like maybe kind of hope, like, man, I really hope it doesn't rain later today, right? Like, like a hope that is fixed, a hope that is sure, a hope that will not be undefiled, that is kept in heaven for us. Amen? And that kind of hope is what the people of God knew in the Old Testament. It was the hope that there was a Messiah coming that God was going to fulfill His promise to crush the head of the serpent, that they could look forward to that and know that it was coming. They just didn't know when. Well, the same is true for us today. We live in kind of this in-between moment where God has already come in Christ. We have seen Christ Jesus in Scripture, alive, living, breathing, dying on a cross for our sins, ascending into heaven where He resides now as King of kings, Lord of lords, reigning and ruling over all the earth, exercising dominion in all the earth, and we can expect that He will come again. Amen? And so now we wait patiently. We wait in this in-between moment. It's a, it's a type of darkness that is filled with light. And so therefore, there are candles, there are Christmas lights, there are things that fill the world with light in these moments during this season to remind us to look up to Christ, as Alan said earlier. That is what the Advent season is all about. It's about looking at the redemption the salvific redemption that came in the death or the birth, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and then also the redemption of all things yet to come when Christ returns and makes all things new. Amen? Amen. So this is what we're going to look at uh, beginning today is kind of what takes place. We're going to start in Isaiah because we're going to look back at some prophecy, look back at what it is uh, that the people of God were looking forward to. Uh, so let's pray before we dive into that. Heavenly Father, we thank You for today. I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You for the opportunity now to preach Your Word. I pray that You help uh, us be good listeners of Your Word, to be uh, people who listen well, who hear well, and who put the Word into action. Father, would You uh, awake us in this moment, awake us in this morning, Father, that we might know Christ fully. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, even if you barely know me and you don't know much about me, one of the things you might observe about me if we're friends on Facebook or, or that kind of thing is that I love this time of year. It's, I think it's the best time of year. It's my, it's my favorite time of the year. 
always. Uh, I love the Christmas, kind of the Thanksgiving into Christmas season. I begin it a little early, as some of you know and have criticized me for. That's okay. Uh, but I, I love the build-up to Christmas Day. I love where it goes to. I, and don't get me wrong, what I don't like about the Christmas season is really all that it's become, right? It's become the most materialistic time of year. And what happens in a materialistic culture and what happens in this time of year is that discontentment is on full display. Discontentment is on full display. We can see it in everything. You can see it in what people are chasing. You can see it in what they're purchasing. You can see it in what they wish they had that they don't have and all of their uh, their lust of the eyes, right? And their, uh, the pride of life and its achievements and the things you can acquire. You can see it in all these things. And I think it's tough to watch. It's, it's tough to observe in others. But the really difficult part is it's tough to see it in myself. It's tough to combat that sometimes, that there's a materialistic nature even within me. There's a discontentment at times within myself. But I think that's one of the reasons why I love this season so much, oddly enough. I think discontentment is the starting place for finding true contentment, lasting contentment. Discontentment is the place where you finally get to, hopefully, the end of your rope and you start looking towards something that will truly satisfy, make you truly content. So discontentment can lead a person in a right direction, but as we observe so often in this, in this time of year, is discontentment can lead a person in a lot of wrong directions. It can lead you endlessly searching, as we saw Solomon doing last week, endlessly searching for lasting fulfillment on the earth. It's just not found there. There's no end to searching for contentment in the world. There's no end to it. You'll search forever. So Advent teaches us contentment. It teaches us to wait expectantly. To be patient but expectant. To know that there is lasting contentment available to us as we look at Christ's coming. So the first advent reminds us, as Alan said earlier, it reminds us of the hope that we have, but it also helps us look forward to the hope we have in the second advent, that if Christ came once, He will surely come again. Christ came and He fulfilled God's promise of salvation. He fulfilled God's uh, uh, the, the sacrifice that was needed for salvation, right? Christ fulfills that. So we can now know that He will come again and fulfill God's promise to complete the redemption, to restore all things, to make all things new. That'll come through a judgment of the living and the dead, and that'll come through a restoration of a new earth, right? A restoration. Behold, all things are becoming new, as we see at the end of Revelation. So I think we need that word today. I think 2020 really needs that word. Uh, 2020 has kind of felt like one long Advent season. I don't mean that you've lit candles and that you've been singing Christmas songs, but it's been a season of just discontentment. 2020 has been, it's, it's been kind of the up and downs of contentment and discontentment, right? It's a longing for things to be uh, right again, a longing for things to be set as they were, a longing for us to return to normal because none of us likes the new normal that's being crammed down our throats, right? We want, we want the old normal. We want things to be right again. Now, it's been full of discontentment in that way. It's felt like only, at least at times, life-sucking darkness. But there have been life-giving moments of light. As I think back across the year, I can think of moments where God did some really incredible things in your lives, 
And God did incredible things in my life and in the life of my family. And I can think back on those things and say, man, God, even in what feels like the darkest year of my life, you're at work. You're doing what you do, and you are not thwarted by what's happening in the world today. And I can be overjoyed in that. I can be content in that. And so Advent is the dawn of light. It's the coming of light in the midst of darkness. It's when light happens. It marks the coming of the light of the world, right? Capitalize light there, the light of the world. And it teaches us how to live in a world of darkness. It teaches us how to do this well. It teaches us how to live in what we might define as exile, where we're not yet home, amen? We're not yet in our final resting place. We're not yet fully enjoying the presence of the Lord, but we're here, and at times it feels like we're just in the midst of nothing but darkness. But you are meant to be light in the midst of darkness, and that's what we want to see today in the Scriptures. So let me tell you just a brief bit about Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied around 740 to 700 B.C. Um, His prophecy comes during the decline of Israel. It's in the shadow of Assyria's uh, dominance. Israel had already split into two kingdoms. Uh, The larger northern kingdom uh, was called Israel, and the smaller southern kingdom was called Judah. uh, Isaiah was called by God to warn his people in Judah of coming judgment due to their unrepentant sins. The book of Isaiah describes God's people in chapter 6 as deaf and blind, that they cannot see nor can they hear the things of God and what He is doing. Deaf and blind, I think, are perfect descriptions of spiritual darkness. Right? They're perfect descriptions of what spiritual darkness is, that God's people uh, were experiencing the spiritual darkness that made them deaf and blind. Today, we experience spiritual darkness in this way, that people are deaf and blind to the things of God. And so they go about doing whatever it is their heart and eyes choose to do, lead them to do. Uh, so Isaiah 1 through 5 really kind of acts as a preface to the book. And we're just going to look at chapter 1 and a brief part of chapter 2 today. But Isaiah, uh, so Isaiah 1 and through 2, 5 helps us see kind of the big picture of what's taking place in Isaiah. It helps us understand that darkness and light can be expected in a world that is not yet fully restored, in a world that is not yet uh, fully redeemed. So let's look at Isaiah 1, 1 through 3. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. So just right out of the gate, Isaiah, with a word from the Lord, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken. So this is God right out of the, why must all creation pay attention? Because God is speaking. All creation pays attention because God is speaking. This is the way Isaiah starts the book because this is the way God says we need to start this book. This is the way we need to start what we're doing. The Lord has spoken. God, right out of the gate, is establishing Himself as the only one that all of creation must, must obey. He's the only one that all of creation must hide themselves in. He's the only one that all of creation must fully submit themselves 
2. He is the one to whom all of creation must give an account to one day. So listen up, Isaiah says. Hear the words of the Lord. And then he goes on, God goes on to say, Children I birthed and brought up have rebelled against me. Now here is the reason for his speaking. Here's why he wants to talk. Because the children that he has created, the people he calls his nation, the people he calls uh, his people, have rebelled against him. So he's saying, listen to my word. It's in a, uh, what he's doing is, he's doing this to address the darkness of the rebellion of his people in Judah. They are his children, yet they have gone their own way. I can't think of any more, anything more difficult probably as a parent to be, uh, except when uh, a child is old enough to really begin making decisions, begin doing things, and they start to kind of go their own way, right? And you just see the pain of that. You see the suffering that they endure in that. Um, we, we often refer to teenagers as rebellious, and I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Um, but what we see are children who are going their own way. They're going against the way that maybe they were raised to go. And I can't think of anything more hurtful than that. And this is what God's explaining. The children whom I have raised up are now going their own direction. They're doing their own thing. He senses that pain at that level. He knows that this is bad for them. The indictment, though, is really quite interesting. The indictment here is that sin is unnatural to God's creative order. Sin is unnatural to the way that He created things to be. It's not unnatural to the brokenness that has come because of sin, but it's unnatural to the creative order that God intended. He says, even the ox knows its owner, even the donkey its master's crib. So He's saying even animals know to whom they belong and to where they go, but He says God's people, my people, do not know me. They do not comprehend what I'm saying. In short, what God is accusing His own people of is that the ox and the donkey are smarter and better off than rebellious humans. The ox and the donkey are better off than rebellious humans, people who turn from God. Look at Isaiah 1.4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Utterly estranged. The rebellion has led to their corruption. They've chosen, uh, they were the chosen seed. They are the chosen seed. They're the nation of God. They're the one who should have been a light to the world, and yet they've become the world. They're not a light to the world, they're like the world. They're like the ones who commit evil acts. They are the ones who are committing evil acts. They are the ones who are trespassing against God, rebelling against the Lord. They're the ones, uh, rather than spreading light into all the earth, as we see in uh, the creation mandate, they're now spreading darkness, the very darkness that they should oppose, into all the earth. And they're doing it in the name of the Lord. Rather than embrace God and the blessing that He would give them, They have forsaken God. They've traded the blessings of God for the faux blessings of the world, for the false blessings of God, the false pretense, the false promises of the world that you will be blessed if you do what your heart desires. You will be blessed if you create for yourself your own gods. You'll be blessed if you live according to your own standards for life. You'll be blessed in these ways. They're choosing to do that, and now they're cut off. They're utterly estranged from God. And so their character has become fully corrupt. 
It's, it's not just some actions that they're doing that they're accused of. It's not, just, it's not just that you commit wrong actions, Judah. It's that the very character within you is morally corrupted now. That this is exactly who you want to be, and so you're chasing that. You've become that. You got exactly what you wanted. And really what it gets into is, is this what you really want? Because what you think you want is not what you really want as you get into it, as we'll see here with the people of Judah. And worse yet, they're passing it from generation to generation. Right? They're leading their children into it, their children's children. Look at Isaiah 1, 5-8. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth and a vineyard, like a lodge and a cucumber field, like a besieged city. You see, the people are experiencing in this moment of their rebellion divine chastisement. It's divine chastisement. It's from the hand of God. It's through the attacks of their enemies, God is chastening His people. He's disciplining His people. These attacks have left their cities shattered. They've left the people crippled from top to toe, right? From head to foot. They've left them crippled inwardly and outwardly. And they are seemingly without a remedy. Their sores are only getting worse as they're left unattended. They're not bound up. They're not putting oil on them. They're not helping them heal. And this would only continue, God is saying, if you persist in this rebellion. If you go on in this rebellion, this will continue. Look at verse 10 through 15. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. The rebellion has led to just dutiful religious practice. It's a heartless practice, right? It's a doing of the hands, which you know is right, but in your heart, you're far from the Lord. And so what happens with those sacrifices? God says, don't even bring them near me. You see, what God's saying is it was never about the blood of the bulls or the ram or the goats. It was about your heart. It was about me having your heart, me being your God, that you would have no other gods before me, that you would not make any idols, right? 
And that is what is happening now. They've made an idol of worship. They made an idol of God. They've served now other gods, both literally and figuratively. They have given themselves to other gods. And so God is saying, I reject such religious practice because your heart is far from me. They're simply going through the motions and they're expecting God's blessing. Going through the motions, expecting God's blessing. This is a dangerous place to be in, my friends. There is no delight in their worship. It's only duty, and so therefore it is only legalism. Now what you need to understand from this passage very clearly is what God says. He says, worship like that is a burden to me. Worship like that is a burden to God because He understands that your heart is far from Him. It's not achieving what He wants it to achieve. Therefore, it's burdensome to Him. It's not the acts. He commanded the acts, right? It's not just the acts of worship. It's not that those are a burden. Those have not become a burden to God. It's the heartless worship that's a burden to God. He did not command heartless worship, right? Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind, all your soul. But the heart, he wants the heart of worship. And then the acts of worship. He wants the heart of worship that results in worshipful service to him, obedient sacrifice to God. That would be delight-filled obedience, not dutiful obedience. Now, what's the difference between what we see Israel doing here and what God really wants of us? Unrepentant personal wrongdoing. It's continuing in sin. It's going on in unrepentance and expecting God to bless you. It's very much like a couple who comes to me unmarried and says, hey, we're living together. We're sleeping together. And yet we want a blessed marriage. We've got all these problems in our marriage. We need you or in our uh, coupleship, in this relationship. And we want you to, to help us fix that. Well, you understand you're asking for the blessings of God without ever submitting to God. You'll not receive the blessings of God until you submit to God. It doesn't work that way. And so from the outset, we have to have a conversation about a heart that is truly worshipful to God, a heart that is truly devoted to God versus people who are just saying, we just want the blessing of God. We want our family to look on this and be pleased. There's more to living for God than just simply showing up for things. You understand, right, that coming to church isn't enough to delight in the Lord. That just being at a church, being a part of a church even, is not enough to delight in the Lord. Prayer on its own is not enough to delight in the Lord. Reading your Bible isn't enough to delight in the Lord. I'm not saying these aren't good things. They're absolutely great things. They are the very means of grace. They're pipelines of grace, to be honest with you. If you'll place yourself within those places with a heart that is delighting in the Lord, you'll experience grace upon grace upon grace. But when you do it with a heart that's far from God, you won't experience grace upon grace upon grace. You see, there will be plenty, plenty of well-meaning, moralistic people in hell. 
People who went to church. People who said some prayers. People who read Scripture. These things are not indicative of a heart that loves the Lord. They are certainly parts of true worship to God, but they are not indicative in and of themselves of a heart that is actually loving God. If you want God's blessing of eternal life, you want to know His blessing of eternal life, you must give all of yourself over to Him. Every single bit of who you are, surrender your life to Him. Delight yourself fully in God alone. That is where you will find the blessings of God. But this one foot in, one foot out, straddling the line of a life fully devoted to God is nothing more than a cultural Christianity that isn't really Christian at all. It's moralistic therapeutic deism, which is a term coined by an author named Christian Smith. This is what moralistic therapeutic deism is, and this is often what we call Christianity today. First, moralistic therapeutic deism says a, a God exists. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, they say God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. <clears throat> the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people will go to heaven when they die. This is largely what we might identify as cultural Christianity. <clears throat> it's just a general belief that God exists and that He wants us to be good people. And when things get tough, we might call on Him. But all good people are going to go to heaven. At least that's maybe not how we're writing it down, but by our lives, that's what many people are living out. And if I could just be good enough, God has to let me in. Surely He wouldn't. But this is nothing more than a false gospel. Sometimes it's believed in ignorance, I think. I mean, I'll give people the benefit of the doubt. It's believed in ignorance. You haven't been discipled by Christians who truly love the Lord, and so you just, not, you just don't know better. Mostly, though, I think it's believed willingly because it's an easy life. It doesn't cost you anything, at least on this side of eternity. It's, it's very easy to be a person like this. You will feel no real rubs against your life when you live this way. Most people will be okay with you living just like that. This belief is one of the greatest darknesses of our day. It's making many people deaf and blind to God's Word. This kind of life is reprehensible to God because it is nothing more than rebellion against what God has said. It is duty without delighting in God alone. It's a works-based gospel. Similar to what the people of Judah are experiencing and what they had bought into here in Isaiah. And we must rest assured that God will not even listen to the prayers of such people. Now what's the one prayer that God will hear from such people? A prayer of repentance. Amen? All of those who humble themselves before the Lord and call on His name for salvation will be heard by God. 
Isaiah 1, 21 through 23. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. You see, we see the very degeneration of God's people. They have become morally corrupt, spiritually corrupt, and things are as bad as they can be. They're in danger of eternal punishment if they remain in this state. And friends, I submit to you today that so are you if you remain in this state. If we remain in our moral corruption, if we serve the Lord with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him, we are no better than whitewashed tombs, as Jesus says. He might look, we might look like light, we might do some light-like things, but we're full of the darkness. The darkest, darkest, darkness, darkness known to man. <clears throat> and so here's kind of my, my big idea for you today. The thing I want to put before you today is this. Darkness exists in the waiting. But the light of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. Darkness exists in the waiting, but the light of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. Look back at Isaiah verse 1-9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, God breathes a breath of hope for the people of God here. There are survivors. There, are in, there is, rather, a remnant of faithful men and women to God. People who will be faithful to God. Look at Isaiah 1, 24-31. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Wow. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Wow. So here what we see is Isaiah saying God will extend His hand to both purge the nation and to bring restoration. This will lead to them being called the city of righteousness, a faithful city or the faithful city. And that's far and away above their identity as we've been seeing it, right? I mean, that's a complete 180. That's a reversal of what we see them as here. But the prophecy is that this will happen. But that is what the work of God does in the lives of His people, is it not? 
If it weren't for the purging and restorative work of God, then we would have no hope for redemption at all. We would have no hope for salvation at all. We would be hopeless. As it is, though, God's people can rest assured that He has not abandoned them, that He will never abandon them. And that is the greatest hope that you can have in the midst of a dark world, is that God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. God is either pruning or purging so that or he's restoring. The one leads to the other. Amen. And so that's the greatest hope we have. It is the very light of God himself at work in our lives when we see it like that. And that light will put an end to all of the darkness that exists in due time. You see, self-sufficiency and man-made gods are a dangerous combination as we see here. They're like tinder and a spark. They will consume one another. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you and I must not envy darkness. We must lament darkness. We must not conform to darkness. We must be conformed to the light of the world. We must not become delighted, uh, we must, sorry, become delightedly dependent upon God Himself, for He alone is God. He alone provides. He alone purges. He alone restores. He's the one to whom we must be dependent. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Let's begin to see how things change here. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we might walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Wow. You see, it is Christ. It is Christ. It is God through Christ who establishes the body as a people lifted up above the hills. Now Christ did this by going up onto a mountain and being raised or lifted up above the hills on a cross. His death secured eternal life for all who will come to Him in faith. All the nations now flow toward God through Jesus Christ. All the nations flow toward God through the people of God as they point to the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the way that we love God with all that we are. And through the way that we proclaim His saving work in all the earth. 
Peace is found only in Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is about Him that the angel of the Lord appears in Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds in the field, and He says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. What kind of people is God pleased with? Those who walk in the light of the Lord. Now, what is it to walk in the light of the Lord? Well, I think it's, there's a few things here worth mentioning. One is that it's, it's about God's favor. You walk in the light of the Lord, you walk in God's favor. Number 625 says, The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Isaiah 1 is the opposite of that. It's to walk without the favor of God. It's to walk in darkness rather than in the light of the Lord. The second thing that I think it's about is God's presence in care. I want to read to you Psalm 27 here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. You see, delighted sacrifice, right? Delighted obedience. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, the spirit of Advent, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's what it means to walk in the light of the Lord. Another thing we see here is, uh, is that it's about God's truth. When you walk in the light of the Lord, you know God's truth. Psalm 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And finally, it's about God's revealed word. It is what leads us in the light of the Lord. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to to my path. There is no darkness in this world when we have the very words of God before us. It's a lamp and a light. How then? How then do we respond today? 
Look back at Isaiah 1, 16-20. It's the exhortation to the people of Judah here on how they can experience the blessing of God once again. <clears throat> Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want to submit to you this again. Darkness exists in the waiting. But the light of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, stop it. Cease to do evil. Cease doing evil. Learn. Learn to do good. Come learn with us. Learn it in our groups. Learn it in studies. Learn it in communi uh, community with one another. Learn to do good. You find it in the Scriptures. Cease doing evil. Put away evil deeds. Listen to me. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't know the Lord as Savior, then it's not just a matter of ceasing to do evil. It's a matter of complete repentance before the Lord. It's a matter of surrendering your life fully to Him. And so I tell you, turn from your sins and flee yourself to God alone. Find mercy and grace. Find salvation in Christ. If you'll do that today, you'll receive what Titus 3.5 calls the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Your life will be made brand new. I encourage you to do that. There's nothing greater we can do in the midst of darkness than to become the very light that we are called to be. Amen? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He is the light of the Lord, and we are the light of the world. Amen? Let us shine brightly during this season as we live in exile, because it won't be this way forever, my friends. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, for this opportunity to speak your word. And I pray now that you help our hearts and minds to be receptive to what we've just heard. Father, would you soften the hearts of the men and women, the boys and girls who are here now, to know your word and to understand it, to hear it and to believe it, to walk in it, to follow you faithfully, fully, 
Heavenly Father, I pray now that You help us as men and women and boys and girls who say we love the Lord, who say that You are our Lord. Help us now to cease to do evil. Help us, Lord, to turn away from the dark things of this world and to turn to the light of the Lord, Christ Jesus. Help us to be fully surrendered to Him. That we would put off the works of the flesh and put on the mind of Christ, which is ours in Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here listening or watching online, Father, that doesn't know You as their Lord. Lord, would You save them from their sins? Would You draw them to Yourself by Your Holy Spirit? Would You give them a new heart? Remove their heart of stone that they might have a heart of flesh. That they might place faith in Christ. That their life might be forever changed. God, give them the power to submit to You to surrender fully to You that they might know eternal life with Jesus. Heavenly Father, we love You. And we thank You for today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and, and sing. Worship team is going to do a song called All Because of Christ which is just a really great one that kind of reminds us of the darkness of, of this day and the times that we live in, the darkness of life itself, and helps us understand that we will get there all because of Christ. Amen?